Hi, I'm Nico Hulkenberg and you are listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello everyone, Tom Clarkson here and welcome to Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. My guest this week is a driver who dominated the junior categories of motorsport in a fashion similar to Lewis Hamilton. He even did some giant killing in his first season of F1 back in 2010, which included a maiden pole position at Interlagos in an uncompetitive Williams. Yet somehow, unbelievably, he's yet to step onto a Formula One podium. I'm talking about Nico Hulkenberg. The fanfare surrounding Nico's arrival into F1 with Williams was loud. He was the reigning GP2 champion and Willy Weber, his manager, was telling the media that Nico was one of the greatest talents he'd ever seen. And yet his star has never shone quite as brightly as it should. He's now in his third season with Renault, of course, and on the strength of the team's performance in Canada last weekend, they're making good progress. Could it be that the Hulk will finally stand on a podium this year? Away from racing, Nico is a no-nonsense kind of guy. Tells it as it is. He's funny too, even first thing in the morning. We had breakfast together in Montreal. I hope you enjoy our conversation, which began with a little bit of chat about his new pet. Well, Nico, welcome to the show. Wonderful to have you on. Thank Um, you very much. Thanks for having me. Any dogs this weekend in Montreal? No dogs at home. He doesn't like traveling too much. Actually, he's very stressed. Apparently, you know, uh, when there's still uh, puppies, something to do with the in-ear balance and uh, kind of yeah, function, it's not really developed yet. So uh, he doesn't feel too comfortable in, in planes and cars right now. So, What breed is he? He's called he's Zeus, a, Zeus, right? Yeah, it's a Pomeranian. What, sorry? Pomeranian, they're called. So is or that- German Spitz, some people refer to, but I think the English version is, is a Pomeranian. You didn't think of getting something bigger, like a like a Rottweiler, or it's, you know, Mike Tyson has some tigers and things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you know, in the future, um, I like big dogs too. But uh, to be honest, I don't mind small dogs as well. And given you know where we live and stuff in Monaco, and you know, it's not spoiled for space there. I think a small dog is a bit more a bit more practical, um, and also you know, easier to travel with. So uh, yeah, for now, it's a small dog, but. You know, don't be fooled. These small ones, they have quite a bit of character and they're quite quite engaging and fun. They are. They are. Well, look, let's talk 2019. Um, in fact, let's talk drivers. Let's talk teammates. Um, how's it going teammates. between you and Daniel Ricciardo? Is, have you got a bromance thing going on or, or is it not possible when, you got, when he's your teammate? Um, nah, yeah, yeah, nah. Mm, it's all good. It's all good. Um, yeah, I think you need I mean, to work on that. So yeah, I know. I'll probably never get there. It's quite tough. The Aussie accent for me. Um, no, I think so far so good. Obviously, this is the seventh weekend, but um, from you know the, the teammate perspective, you know we get on well. I think we're both well established. You know, experienced driver. Um, it's competitive, but we certainly get on outside the track as well and, and have a good laugh as well. How does it change when a driver comes in from outside the team? The needle increases. The needle? The needle between the two of you increases. The, the, the rivalry. You know, is he more of a smiling assassin now that he's your teammate? A smiling assassin? <laughs> uh, not really, to be honest. I'm, I was always... yeah looking at it quite relaxed obviously it's you know a very important uh, you know subject this this whole battle and and 
yeah, who, who, who is in front, who is on top of who. And, you know, it could be really deciding for my future, but, you know, for his at the same time. So, you know, the pressure is kind of on uh, from, from all sides. But, you know, we're in Formula One after all, um, a very um, competitive environment. You know, pressure is on all the time and we just got to live with it and, and make it work. But um, so far, I'm enjoying the challenge, um, you know, to be, to be up against a guy like him. Uh, multiple Grand Prix winner. It's been the case with Rubens in 2010, but I think it's not quite the same and, and as good a comparison as this. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So is Daniel the quickest teammate you've ever had? Um, I think it's a little early to say that. Of course, he knows what he's doing. You know, I can tell uh, that he's he's obviously very fast and, and definitely ticks a lot of boxes. Um, Carlos was fast. Uh, Checo was fast. I think it's a little early to to say that you know he'd be the fastest but for sure uh, he's, he's pretty good now you've listed some names there you even mentioned Rubens I want to take you back because Rubinho Rubinho do you stay in touch yeah, I do actually text with him sometimes and normally during the uh, Brazilian weekend we catch up a bit and, and go out for dinner or do something seems a long time ago now doesn't it it is a bloody long time ago <laughs> it's, it's 10 years yeah. yeah I mean was he a generous teammate to you back in Williams? What you were what, 21, what, generous? what just did he there. share data? <laughs> did he give you lots of presents? No, there is no such thing as a generous teammate. <laughs> did, he, did he share data and try and help you? Or was he aware that you were coming in as you were the sort of the golden boy, you'd won everything in the junior formulas? And was he quite wary of you like that? Uh, I think he was, but there was never a Chinese wall. So there was always, to be honest, all the teams I raced for in all my years, there was always data sharing going on you could always see what what the other side is doing but Rubens was certainly good at uh, you know holding back things um, you know always till the last moment in qualifying he always liked to you know keep me keep me ahead in practice you know make me think that I'm that I'm confident and comfortable ahead and then you know he would yeah make make hammer time and qualifying and often surprise me ah but he didn't do that at his home race did he no there it was the opposite actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean crikey that pole position was just an amazing thing. Was it more, you did two laps good enough for pole and mm. you were a second clear of everybody. Yeah, that was, that was pretty special um, at the time. And uh, yeah, it was one of those, you know, special conditions, uh, damp track to start with in quality, then it was drying out. Um, obviously by Q3 we're on slicks, but it was, yeah, it was still, still damp at, at uh, you know, certain areas and, and a good part of the track but it sort of uh, suited my driving style you know I could really drive aggressively produce some some good tire temperature and, and just you know floor it and it all just came together and I just kept my head down you know kept pushing I wasn't aware actually at the time my engineer didn't tell me nothing just at the end that things went pretty well who was your engineer back then at Williams uh, you know you do know Tom was big it Tom yeah. it was big Tom yeah <laughs> we're not talking about ketchup either <laughs> 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 you won't appreciate me so it was Tom McCart what did he say to you as you crossed the line I don't remember exactly, but of course he said something like, uh, yep, that's P1, mate. I mean, man, it was... Can you, can you remember your emotions even now, 10 years on? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm German. I'm not that, all that emotional. I was, just, uh, I was just happy at the moment, of course, at the time. But at that time, you know, it was a very critical and difficult time because my, my, my future was very uncertain. You know, and Williams, they were playing games a little bit then. Had not, you had the bad news at that point? No, I didn't. Didn't the bad news only really came after Abu Dhabi after the race? So at that point, you know, I was still obviously trying to uh, hope and, and you know believing in it that there was a chance. But I think the decision had been made a long time before. But they just didn't want to tell me to keep the uh, to keep the spirits high. But um, yeah, so 
How did Frank break the news? So, of course, for those of you who can't remember who's listening, <laughs> he got this amazing poll in Brazil and then was sacked by Williams and uh, left out on your ear. How did Frank break the news to you? Yeah, but it's not just about one, one moment in the season. That was one good moment. I think there were many others. But in the first year, to be fair, I did make, up, make uh, quite a few mistakes as well, you know, as we all do probably as rookies. But it was actually Adam Parr that broke the news. But then I went to see Frank as well and... Yeah, I don't know he's what he pretty said, cold said. in those that sort of yeah, situation. Yeah, he's pretty. You know, it's business as usual. That's life. You know, nothing personal. But we had to take a we had to take a corporate decision. Blah blah blah. Thanks for your thanks for your efforts. Yeah. <laughs> See you again. And how tough was 2011 then when you had to sit it out on the sidelines? Well, you did a few FP ones. You did a lot of FP ones. I did a fair few FP ones. Yeah. yeah, I did. I don't know, like 13 almost. I think yeah. you know most than than any other has done since or before. So that was. Yeah, the best part of it and, and the good side of it. Of, of course, it wasn't the best year um, and the most enjoyable for, for my, uh, from my perspective. But, you know, it was worth it to, to wait for it and then, you know, get the race drive the year after. Were you very impatient back then? I still am now. So it hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. That's but something, you know, sometimes, you know, things are beyond your control, out of your control in Formula One. That was one of those things. And, uh, yeah, I just had to, had to wait you know, uh, keep the motivation up, keep positive mind and, and wait for the, for the call to go green. So who was looking after your business affairs back then? Was it Willy Weber? Um, it was up until the end of 2010, beginning of 11. And then we sort of, we broke up. Because it kind of didn't work out, did it really? <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out. A few <laughs> other things away from the track happened as well. So things went, you know, a little bit. There was a break of trust, basically, and, and we, we stopped working there. So then Werner Heinz? No, that right? was later with, with Heinz. That started only end of 12, 13, kind of. But, um, I mean, it seems to me, Nico, you've had, you know, you've done 160-odd Grand Prix now, and you've experienced... Almost every emotion under the sun. Not really. Except the one of absolute elation because, you've, <laughs> you, you know, you haven't yet, you've yet to win a race, you've yet to be... I mean, can you explain to me where it... In your mind, why hasn't it happened? Because you won everything in the junior formulas, you came into Williams, kept Barrichello honest, did that amazing thing in, in, in Brazil. Everybody was talking about you then as, you know, the next big thing. How do you square it away in your mind? It hasn't happened for a few reasons. I mean, there was there were a few opportunities where it could have happened. Like Monaco 2016 was one of them, but we, we made a bad strategy call or the, the team did at the time. And yeah, it went, it went bad and, and we lost out there. Um, Brazil 12? Brazil 12, where sort of, you know, I sort of, yeah, threw it away a little bit by, you know, attacking Luis there, but... I was leading the race also with a minute before the safety car came out. So that would have mm. been like almost a guaranteed win. But mm. the safety car had me over there. You know, there's always, if you go into every weekend or every opportunity, there is a reason or, you know, an issue somewhere. So for one reason or another, it hasn't happened. So, of, of course, that's in a way annoying and, and not nice. But yeah, it's the way it is. I can't change the, the past. So I have to focus on the future and, and trying to uh, change it ASAP. Well, look, let's talk about the 2019 Renault. Strengths and weaknesses of the car? Strengths are, I think, so far we've been pretty consistent on every track in terms of pace, but we didn't have the yeah the smoothest of seasons and six weekends with with quite a lot of hiccups and, and you know kind of issues already. So uh, that hindered us from from scoring more points than than what we have. But I think uh, 
the car is so far has been a good all-rounder and all sorts of different type circuits we've been competitive and we always had the potential to be fourth fastest and you still believe firmly that p4 in the championship is on it is definitely still on you know and and if you see i'm not actually sure of the exact standings and who is fourth right now but the gap in terms of points is it's not very large so um yeah i mean i lost massive amounts in in bahrain you know where p6 we lost um daniel lost quite a bit in, in monaco now obviously he could have had a great race there so it's definitely on we are competitive we just like i said we just so far i don't know we've had had quite a lot of hiccups and, and problems so far this year and we just need to try and you know dial those out and, and stay stay a bit cleaner and what are you being told about the french grand prix I'm reading quite a lot that there's a lot coming and it's an exciting time for the team. There's quite a lot rest on Paul Ricard. Is there? I don't know. Is there? I don't read the press too much, to be yeah, honest. So I, I tend to speak more. Uh, there's stuff coming, yeah. like every race kind of a little bit. I think there's not a, a revolution somewhere or sort of, sort of a B car, but there's certainly updates coming and there's a couple of things uh, in the pipeline, yeah, that I know the, the engineers are quite excited about, but... You know, it's always also a matter of, yeah, proving them out and really, you know, making sure they do what, what they're supposed to do and, and give the performance gains. And how's the mood in the camp when you go back to Enstone, when you go to Viri? I think the mood is, is still good. Of course, everyone is a little bit disappointed with, with the start of the season. But at the same time, you know, upbeat to, to change things and, and to come out on top. Ferrari. I never heard of them. <laughs> I've got a note in front of me that says, ask him about Ferrari in 2014. Um, how close did you it get? It was in 13, actually. Or 414, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How close did you get? You never know these things. And they, the people that make the decisions, they don't tell you. It was like an inch, a bee stick. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I really don't know how, but it was... It was a long old summer for you. I remember that because the rumours were going on and on for quite a while. Yeah, there was definitely some talks and I think there was, there was an, a realistic uh, opportunity for, you know, for, for quite a, a decent period of time. But then, unfortunately, yeah, at the end, it, it did fell through. Did you go to Maranello? No, never, never came that far. How instrumental was Alonso, do you think? I'd like to know that too. Did you talk to him about it? Yeah, I did. But with Fernando, I think you can never be totally sure, you know, what he says and what he actually like means, you know. Uh, he's, I think he likes the game sometimes. But um, so I'm, I'm not really sure um, if he was supporting it or not, to be honest. And, and now anyway, it's, it's in the past. Did it get as far as a contract? As in not signing it, but did you get as far as sort of, you know, looking at a contract and... You want to know all the details? Yeah, now? I can't. Dude, this is. I, I don't uh, want to go there. Why? Or in case you go there again? <laughs> no, but just it's like, well, why? What's the point to talk about this? No, now? okay. It's just that it's really interesting because it was it was a, an exciting time, for you. Yeah, especially that second half in thirteen. Obviously, I made the move and the decision to leave Force India for Sauber, and then at the beginning of thirteen, we really had issues at Sauber and also Pirelli at that time. You know, they had changed the the tire uh, construction from 12 and we were struggling a lot and Forzinia was so strong at the beginning of 13 and I was kind of thinking like, fuck, yeah. <laughs> what have I done? You yeah. know, because I really believe uh, at the beginning of 13 in that Forzinia car, I could have done some real good damage and there's potentially probably a podium or two that were, you know, that we missed out on there. But I was in the Sauber and the first half was tough, but then 
Uh, luckily, Pirelli made some construction changes again that suited the car more. Uh, Sauber developed the car a bit better. And then in the second half, we actually we scored a decent amount of points. Yeah, fourth in career and things, weren't you? Yeah. But were you looking at the bigger picture in that move to Sauber? The thing is, you know, in Formula One, you always take a decision based on facts that you know right now. And in 12, you know how often I got lapped by that Sauber car in, in Monza and other circuits. And that car looked like amazing, you know, like a top car planted. I know Checo, you know, blasting <laughs> by me and I'm like, Jesus, I want a car like that, you know, and then... You talk to the team, you negotiate, and of course, teams always tend to tell you, you know, oh no, things are looking great with tons of upgrades. You know, we found a lot of downforce. They obviously want to, uh, they want to tease you and, and make you come if if they if they think you you're a good driver and you know can be of use to them. So uh, yeah, made that commitment, made that decision, but then things turned out to be you know not so great at the beginning of 13, and uh, at the same time also Sauber started to you know hit some financial trouble. And, and the whole situation was a bit uh, was a bit tricky. But were you looking at the bigger picture in terms of if I go to Sauber, I'm a little bit closer? Ah, uh, no. To be honest, there was nothing of that because they had a Ferrari engine, yes, and a gearbox. But I don't uh, honestly, that was not on my mind. That was not the reason why why I made the move. I really made the move because I thought the Sauber car will be continue, you know, to be a good car, and I have better better chances of, of better results in that car. So. You returned to Force India in 14, and Checo is your teammate. Was he quicker than you were expecting? That was the first year of us, right? Mm. Um, no, not quicker than expected. I think 14 was, anyway, was a, was a bit of a struggle for me. I really didn't like those cars, because 14, you know, we came from 13 with the blown diffuser cars, you know, quite a lot of downforce. Um, and then 14, yeah, it was kind of a castrated Formula One car for me. And it doesn't, didn't really suit my driving style. I couldn't, you know, drive but it hard. Why was it castrated? Why? What did, why did yeah, because we lost a lot of downforce. The cars were massively, you know, that's the time, obviously, the aero rules changed a lot. Yeah. And we went to the V6 turbo uh, era that started, the hybrid, the hybrid engines. Uh, did you enjoy bigger. the extra torque, though, from the... Not really, because you couldn't use it. You didn't have the grip and the downforce to use it. So you had to really underdrive and be super sensitive. And that's where Checo is really good, you know, and he made those one-stop strategies work and looking after the rear tires, he's, he's really good in that. I actually learned a lot from him uh, over the years, uh, looking after rear tires. So that's why at 14, I was sort of like, mm, I was never in, in a comfortable situation because it didn't suit my, my natural uh, driving style. Which is what? aggressive yeah just push it more you know so try, you're drive loving it harder the more downforce we have on this really car. i like to wring its neck yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lap for lap but often nowadays with tires and fuel it's it's not that much possible anymore unfortunately even but but i mean a quali lap 20 2019 quali lap yeah, no, i'm not talking quali i'm talking race now yeah yeah but but are these the most fun cars you've driven in 10 years um I'd say generally since uh, 17, so the, the bigger cars, you know, the bigger generation cars, more, more wing, more downforce, it's definitely more fun. So 14 was really bad, 15 got better, 16 got better because every year, you know, the engineers recover downforce and find, find performance back. But I think for me, honestly, the, the era of the blown diffuser cars, so 12 and 13, that was my favorite. That's interesting. Uh, what do you feel about the technical direction of Formula 1 because now is obviously big discussion for 2021 I'm going to take you back to your Le Mans Porsche 
obviously the, de the downforce is generated so differently in those. So you've had a bit of experience of that. What would you like to see more of in the 2021 race? Yeah, but then in Le Mans, you know, you did the kind of uh, wheel-to-wheel racing, really battling close to each other doesn't happen uh, so much in a 24-hour race because it's a different different type of game, isn't it? So it's, you, What, because you're not on the limit? You, no, but because it's a much longer race, a different, different ball game. But when you're in the car, you're still, everyone tells no, no, me... No, you, you're pushing very hard, but you never, I was never, you know, in a Formula One race, often you're really tucked up behind another car and one behind you, you know, you, you're fighting in with, within a second of each other the whole race. In Le Mans, you, you're more or less always at least a few seconds clear. It's no point to, you know, keep the guy under pressure because it's another 23 hours to go or something like that. So it's, it's a bit different, but... Um, Yeah, very different animal, to be honest. Obviously, I enjoyed those six months, you know, from when I started at Porsche. The first testing was January and then Le Mans is what, in June, June I think. Yeah. So great six months, great experience, of course, because, you know, it turned out to be great. We won the race. Everyone's happy. But um, yeah, it's big cars, heavy cars, sort of in a way that the Formula One cars are now. Um, and I don't like that too much because cars then, when they're too heavy race cars, they get sort of bit lazy and clumsy in the low speed corners um, and a bit of a handful to drive um, but obviously it was impressive it's four-wheel drive car um, big hybrid engine you know two electric motors on the front axle were you um, surprised by the performance of that car uh, yeah it was certainly it was certainly quick high speed was was super fast as well and was getting close to formula one uh, speeds um What do you in think a way, it's, it's had traction control, four-wheel drive. So, you know, it's, as a driver, it depended on the circuit a bit, but Le Mans is a lot of straight line, as you know. And then there's a, there's a couple of chicanes. So sometimes it was, I felt like, mm, this is, yeah, a bit easy. What about at Spa, though? You did the Spa race in that, didn't you? Yeah, Spa is only a six-hour race, though. And but just as a lap, it's a more... Yeah. You're a busier lap for the driver. You, you know, it was great, but at the end of the day, I'm a single-seater guy. <laughs> I'm a Formula One yeah. guy. I always, you know... So you were never you tick that box and never tempted to go back? Or had, had Porsche not withdrawn, would you have gone back again? Probably not, because then, you know, I signed for Renault. So I'm with a manufacturer now. In 16, I was with a, with a private team. So, you know, it, it all fell in place, kind of. No conflict of interest there. I'm not sure Renault would even, you know, let me to, to race for another brand. Um, but I ticked that box and that was good, but... Then obviously, anyway, I, I, I changed team to Renault. So then I also, my mind was not there. I wanted full commitment, full, uh, full um, focus on Formula One. So I'm not saying never again Le Mans, but I think as long as I'm active Formula One driver, probably not. Were you surprised though at, at the feedback you got after winning that race? I remember we went to Austria and all yeah, anyone wanted a, to talk to you about was Le Mans, not Formula One. Yeah, it was, it was a big deal. And yeah. you know, just how, how it came about because we were the three... Like Earl, Nick, myself, we were three rookies, you know, we just came in. They said, okay, Porsche is th putting a third car just to, you know, enhance their chances. Nobody was expecting anything from us. And then we end up winning the thing, you know, and on merit because we were just killing it on pace, everyone else. And it was, it was so fun. All three of us, we just fucking absolutely wrecked the car and floored it. And, and it you didn't know, miss a beat because I was there. Yeah. I was, it was the yeah, it was, I went It was absolutely to. fantastic. And, and the atmosphere and, and the vibe of that whole race and during the night, you know, I'll never forget. And, and the moments... Um, that we had all amongst each other was, was fantastic. Um, unf unforgettable. I remember, I remember being in the Porsche hospitality with you after the race and we were having a beer and just that, com that look of complete satisfaction on your face was just... Yeah, and you it know, was just really nice to see. It was also a long time 
since I had won something. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> probably you know, a bit of that as well. It's, it's just a good feeling, and yeah. you know, it's reminded me a lot about those. In 2009, I've been, I don't know, countless times on the podium in, in GP2 and in F3 also. So yeah, it was nice to be back up there. Yeah. Now, let's talk about racing heroes. Um, funny, we're having this chat in Montreal. Uh, not very, in a few hours' time, you're going to be jumping in your number 27 Renault RS19. Um, Everyone thinks that Gilles Villeneuve must have been a hero of yours because of the number 27. Is it true? <laughs> no, it's actually not true. Had I known it was his number, I would have, not, I would have chosen a different one. But it just... So it was the number that you had in karting, right? No. So wh no. where did 27 come from? Just from uh, a lack of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it can't be that, really? Yeah. We Basically, I think we didn't get much notice from the FIA to hand in our, you know wishes of numbers so first choice second third choice we had basically i think 48 hours to come up and you know hand it to the fia and i'm really not superstitious with numbers i really you know I, it's not a big deal for me it's not important and sort of talking to my dad over lunch i said like what do you think that i've i've you know i've got no clue i don't know he said like why don't you do your birthday dates 19th august 198 27 i said okay let's do that and that was it so it's dad's idea and dad didn't kind know of. it was Gilles Villeneuve's song. <laughs> you, so you I don't know if it's, you know, it also shows obviously that I'm not really a big, uh, yeah, so good in history and, and uh, know the history of my sport. That's probably, I should be a bit ashamed of that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's nothing to do Have with Have you taken with more of an interest in the history of the sport the longer you've been in it? No. Why are you not interested in the history of the sport? Not just in, in, in this sport in general. Um, I mean, I've watched, you know, documentaries, the, the, the Nikki film, the, the Senna stuff, and I've watched the odd, you know, old Grand Prix, but I'm just not such a historic person. Always looking ahead. I'm more modern at the pulse of the time, looking ahead, you know. Well, in fact, just as we were kicking this <laughs> off, you were saying, what's going on in the tennis in, in Roland Garros? Exactly, but let's check. <laughs> it's semi-final day. <laughs> but look, what about other sports then? Um, why tennis? Why this obsession with because tennis. it's so you know it's the complete opposite of of my sport or what what i do for a living you know f1 is a massive team sport um but we are dependent on a lot of people and a lot of things and in tennis of course they also have a team around them and a coach and, and blah 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 but at the end of the day it's, it's you and the racket and, and your form and your determination your skills so it's it's just um are you a, a opposite for me. are you a, a single hand backhand a la Roger, Roger Federer? So you're Federer, Stenvrinka, right? Federer backhand, yes. Right, because it's everyone tells me the lessons I have. They say, yeah, it's only Federer can only do that because he's so strong. No, I disagree. And that you're actually better off doing a double handed backhand is what I'm told. I don't know. There's like with doctors, I guess different doctors, different opinions, right? True, true. Well, what else floats your boat, Nico? So it's tennis. What, what else floats my boat? Yeah. <laughs> Um, just away from the track. Tell us. I mean, I'm still a petrol head. I love cars, and yeah. I've had, you know, I've been through a fair few cars that I, you know, bought and, and also sold again. But um, classic stuff, or no? Now the classic stuff is starting a bit more, actually. Some, you know, uh, old, older vintage Porsches. I'm starting to get interested in a bit now. A bit more away from all the modern uh, digital stuff. A bit more back, you know, to being analog, mechanical, analog, exactly. Um, because obviously that's time is never going to come back in these cars. So I want to try and secure a couple of them and you know, have them because it's, it's different and it's nice and a different kind of driving experience and feel. So a weekend off from racing 
can we imagine you and your girlfriend cruising the south of France in an old car? Is that, does that happen? Yeah, it does happen. Is that, do you find that relaxing? It's just a, a casual day at home, um, having a nice relaxed weekend with, with friends, family, the girlfriend, play some tennis. Yeah, like you say, drive around some uh, nice road. We have Route Napoleon, you know, which has a lot of nice uh, bits in it. Go to some French uh, brasserie, kill some, some frogs there and be happy. <laughs> what about cycling? Seems to me a lot of people who live in Monaco are into that. Yeah, I'm not one of them. It's too time-consuming. It hurts my bollocks, so I'm not doing that. that too often. But how do you get fit? It's a brilliant way to stay fit, isn't it? I'm, I'm more a runner. Running, tennis, and, and a little bit of gym. So that's the main exercises I do. But for me, I've always been a runner. I think it's just more What's efficient. What's your distance? Uh, 10K. What can you do 10K in? Depends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will not reveal now. What about 1,500 metres? Is that too short? 1,500? You mean what I could do in maximum time or what? Yeah, what's your best time, 1,500 meters? I never did 1,500, to be honest, but I guess, what is it, one, four... Oh, no, no, I think you, you either... Seven or below seven, six no, something? You'd be, if you're a runner, you'd be doing below seven. Yeah, yeah, below seven. So, but 10, 10K, my personal best is just yeah, around 40. Right. 40, zero, a little bit below perhaps, but yeah. And so clay, all the clay courts around Monaco get used by you? Uh, I, yeah, I'm. I'm uh, are you playing the country club? You know where they have the tournament yeah. as well, and uh, and Monaco. You know the thing is, you can play outside pretty much all year long. Very rarely that we have a yeah. a full you know couple of days of rain. So yeah, that's that's pretty pretty cool. So you've lived in Monaco, I think, for a couple of years. Did I read four, that? Yeah. Four years now. Where were you before that, and how often do you get home? Before that, home I, as in parental home. Before that, I lived in Switzerland, Lake Constance, for two years. Uh, before that, I was in Germany near Frankfurt, uh, so away from home. Um, and how often I go home now? Not too often, to be honest, maybe twice per year. Why did you give up on Switzerland? Because it was, it was a bit boring, a bit dull. I broke up with my ex-girlfriend back then and I just needed a change and go somewhere where there's a bit more life and a bit more where I find a bit more... Is Monaco lively? Is Monaco lively? In the summer, certainly, Is yeah. It really? More than Switzerland, where it's just fields and cows. Yeah, but I've and... been to Monaco at non-Grand Prix time, and it's like... Yeah, mate, you don't know where to go. Well, clearly, clearly I don't. All right, so then, but you go back home, home to Emmerich. Mum and Dad still... Yep, they live there still, yeah. What kind of a place is it? What kind of childhood was it? Poverty. <laughs> Struggling to find water. <laughs> no, so Emmerich is, uh, we have a population of... 30, 35,000 people. So it's a small city, you call that, no? Yeah. Um, not the prettiest, I, I feel, but... Uh, Are you their most famous export? I guess. I don't know, we have, we have a couple of... On the industrial side, it's actually quite strong there. A lot of industrial companies that are based there, Katjes, they used to be my sponsor, you know, they're like Haribo. Okay. Biggest competitor of that Haribo. Popular with Heidi Klum used to be the, the advert... Okay. face for them yeah they're very big in germany internationally not as big but they are just around the corner from home the factory but uh yeah a lot of a lot of uh, also it's very flat where i live um a lot of fields a lot of cows great forests. that's why I, I fell in love with running there you know around when you have forests and you can go run in them um and then also a bit towards the dutch side because emmerich is just two kilometers from the border to holland 
it was getting a bit more hilly, so we had really good trails there. Um, I could so do a lot of school, running. are you as Dutch was taught in school as a, almost like a first language or not? No, I had some Dutch at school, but I missed a lot of school to be honest because I was, uh, you know, go karting back then was already so intense, so professional. So I was kind of, yeah, I missed half of the school year, um, basically. How did you do that? How, how did you get permission to do God, that? No, the school was aware. We, we get fined in England if you... Uh, if anyway, it was every, every, after every weekend there was stuff in, in the local newspaper anyway, you know, of how I'd raced and stuff, so it was locally known. But um, no, the school dire- the director, you know, we, we talked to him and he was actually very supportive, luckily. He said, like, okay, I support this as long as your marks are, you know, average if they drop too much then uh, you know i have to i have to step in but god knows how i managed actually to keep them average because i really wasn't a big fan of school did you have a tutor a teacher come around no, 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 racing no. with you no no time when you go around racing you're busy non-stop you know i was i was driving i was also being kind of my own mechanic many times you know you you prepare the card you clean the card you you pack up next day you do the unpacking again it was a it was a Long days and, and good, good hard times with with your father primarily. My fa- no, then when we moved to Italy, when things got a bit more international, you know, Italian Championship, German Championship, Europeans, World Cups, he sort of put me with the team. CRG Holland um, and Michel Fatschierka was the, the like the yeah the owner of the team, and, and he and his people were yeah looking after me, and I was basically living with them and you know moving around like in a circus. It's just like More than often sleeping, you know, in the van, in the back of the van on, on just on some... On some uh, There's a purity to karting. And when, the yeah. more I speak to you guys, you all miss that purity, don't you? No, I'm enjoying that luxury right now also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those days are gone, so I had that. No, so. but just the purity of the racing and yeah. the camaraderie in the paddock is also very different in karting, isn't it? The friendship. Yeah, it is. It was... It was, it's also competitive, but yeah, it's different. It's obviously before you all reach the, the pinnacle of your sport and everyone is still, you know, working towards it. And, you know, if I think how many, like, guys and, and nationalities I've raced with there and, like, now they're all, I don't know what they do now, but many of them are not even, you know, racing anymore. They had to find and make a different living. So, yeah, quite, quite, uh, quite amazing. Who of the current grid did you race in karting? Current F1 grid. I raced actually a lot against uh, Boemi, but he's not obviously now current grid anymore. Current grid. Who was quicker, you or Boemi? Me, of course. Of Of course. Um, Current grid, actually not so many. I was always a bit offset with Sepp. Sepp was always, because Sepp, in karting, because he's a little bit older and he always, he stopped karting when he was 16 and moved to Formula BMW. And I continued for another two years before I moved to single-seater. So that's why we were always like a bit offset. Although I think we were the same age, just like one or two mm. months different. But he, he decided to go for the, for the single-seaters earlier, which was probably a good thing in hindsight. <laughs> do, you, do you still hang out with Seb? No, not really. I mean, at the race weekend, we chat sometimes. But, you know, he lives in Switzerland and, and I don't. So I just mean, because certainly back in the day, I was... Um uh, doing one of these podcasts with, I think it was Alan Jones, and he was saying how different nationalities used to hang out. So the French drivers always used to hang out together in his day, and the English drivers used to hang out a bit. But is it you saying that doesn't happen so much now, or just not the German drivers anyway? Mm, I think generally that I think applied a bit more when it was 
yeah, it's like 70s, 80s, maybe 90s. Nowadays, I think it's a bit different. Like, I think drivers generally, unfortunately, don't tend to, yeah, to, to mingle so much anymore. Um, and now it's only Sepp and myself anyway, so there's only two Germans left. When I started in 2010, I think we were seven. But even back then, you know, uh, you would talk to them on the grid and it was nice, you could speak your mother language, but it was not that we were, you know, meeting up after for a barbecue or something. So, Nico, what about the future? How long you is it going to take you to turn things around at Renault and start winning races? And what's your, what's your feeling? What's, what's your, your estimation? What's your take? Give me your views. Uh, well, you've already told me that I don't know what's going on in the team. So it's not quite difficult. I didn't to tell me. you that. <laughs> I was asking Did I you about You didn't really. <laughs> when we were talking about updates and stuff. I mean, do you feel you have everything you need to, to win? It's just a well, case. Right now, and it's just a case of it all needs bedding in and gelling and time to mature. Right now, we don't have everything what it takes to win. Like you can see, we're still quite far away from from uh, from Mercedes certainly. But I mean, look at teams like Red Bull and Ferrari that have huge resources and still how you know far they are from Mercedes or how dominant Mercedes is. So um, I think it's it's hard to obviously say for sure and, and be you know certain about it. But I am still positive and, and confident that we can still progress at Renault and make, you know, uh, steps certainly much closer to, to the podium and uh, potentially victory, uh, hopefully in two years. Do you feel that, have you nailed your colours to Renault? Do you feel it, if it's going to happen for you, it has to be with this team or do you think you've still got time? I don't think I've nailed anything with anybody or any colour, but for now, for me, you know, home is Renault and I feel pretty, pretty happy there. We're in a third year. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, it's the third year. Um, not so far, you know. It's uh, it's still a it's still a good relationship. The love and the fire is still burning. So, how's the team evolved in those one, two, three years? Yeah, it's 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 grown a lot. Um, That's what I was meaning about bedding in, because it's as you say. Was it last year alone? There was eighty new people or something. And yeah, true. And it always takes time. You know, you you recruit new people. They they start working before. You know, that pays off. It takes usually like half a year to a year. And, and then the whole other process, you know, the, the resources. I mean, the factory has been massively upgraded and renewed and new machines and this and that. But yeah, till all this, you know, falls into place and, and really pays dividends, it, it usually takes a good amount of time. Um, in the impatient world of Formula One, that's, that's a bit tricky. But, uh, you know, it's it's down to us, down to the people as well. You know, I think we, we've, by Renault, we've, we've given been given the budget so we have you know uh, i think what it takes to to deliver and develop this car so now we need to we need to prove as well that we can do it and do you and daniel want the same thing from the car does that actually help? yes very often if you if you could listen to the debriefs it's more or less copy paste he says it obviously in aussie language different kind of <laughs> choose chosen of words but uh we tend to want the same things from the car and in setup often we end up pretty pretty similar so that's at least you know gives one clear good direction for the team and was that the case in the past with people like carlos Sainz? um yeah i think carlos as well generally we were also uh d'accord and on par with, with what we needed or wanted um checo actually as well just you know the good drivers just know what they want he says a good driver we haven't actually talked about carlos Sainz. um how good is he <laughs> he's good yeah. <laughs> it's like you tell me how good is he Tom Clarkson <laughs> exactly. give me your take you put, like putting you. me on the spot here huh? yeah well I don't feel I've got the tools to judge him as well as you oh, really? because you've been his teammate did he surprise you 
I thought, obviously, on paper, at the end last year, maybe it looked, um, it looked as if maybe I was dominant. But I always felt it was always very close, you know, and there was really little things that were separating us or deciding who was ahead. Um, so, no, I, what, what impressed me, he's a really, uh, really hard worker. I have never seen a guy that spends so much time with the engineers and really digs in and even between races looks to every little detail, every onboard and, you know, really, really, yeah, leaning into it and, and working his way, working his way through, especially at the beginning of last year, he was struggling a bit, but then, you know, he just kept working, kept working and you could see how he's coming closer and closer and how he got, you know, he worked his way in basically. And is that where experience helps you? Because you just know what you want because you've got... It's not just always necessary experience, it's just also sometimes when he'd done a few races in 17 with the team, but only 3-4, I think it was. And then obviously it's, it's, it's a long winter and a new start, so it was basically again starting with a new team. Whereas for me not, and you, you saw a bit the same again with Daniel, it, no matter, I think, how good a driver you are, you need a little bit of time to, you know, to, like to come home again, to, to you know, uh, develop that language, even with, with your engineers, with your people, to get comfortable in the car, know how you want to set it up, where, where the things is, how to drive it. So this just usually takes a couple of weekends. Okay. So final thoughts, really, from me are... Lewis Hamilton says he's got another five years in Formula One. What does Nick Hulkenberg think? How um, long have you got? About Lewis or myself? No, no, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I th- I'm 32 in August. I-, I still got a good couple of years in myself. Um, Only two? A couple means two in, in British. It, for it me, does. a couple also could be three, four. So you mean several, several years. Several, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for me, as long as I feel that I'm still... Yeah, that, I st- that I've still got it. That the young, you know, young kids don't come in and kick my ass. And as long as I feel the fire burning and the determination to to do it and put in the hard work, I'm I'm ready to go. And do you still love the travel? Do you still love the training? Well, the traveling sometimes you love it more, sometimes you love it less. But it's it's part of the job. You know, it's uh, it's not a big issue. And the training? I mean, yes, tennis is a pleasure, but being beasted in the gym. Um, again, there also some some days it's really tough and you really need to you know battle through. Some days it's it's more enjoyable, but generally you know staying fit and also feeling and seeing the progress there it's 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 good. It's fun and you also feel that it does pay off in the car. So the fitness bit, yeah, Men- uh, fit physically means fit mentally as well. Do you? Except they are connected in a way. But if you're fitter physically, you just have more capacity in the car during a you know quality or race to do more things at the same time now you're fitter but you're heavier this year aren't you no I've, to be honest that's one thing I've been well, all my career be all my career the... I've been the same weight always 78 so, kilograms with, with like kid with everything okay so, so the fact that you're now 80 kilos the car uh, the, the driver is considered 80 kilos in the car that, yeah. you haven't changed your weight others... no I haven't changed my weight others have put on weight but because I you know always, I always had to be on the skinny or low side because obviously I'm tall um, how tall are you? 185 in meters, that is. And you're 78 kilos and have been for 10 years. Pretty much, yeah. Just you wait till you hit 40. Yeah. I'll be <laughs> 75. Yeah, you reckon? <laughs> Nico, thank you so much for your time. It's great to just chew, chew the cud with you and good luck this weekend. Good luck for the rest of the season and get on that podium. Thank you very much, Tom.
Is the Hulk the unluckiest driver of the modern era? Possibly. Does he deserve better? Certainly. Yet despite not having the F1 trophies that his talents surely warrant, he manages to keep his life in perspective. He appreciates how lucky he is in the larger scheme of things, and he's lost none of his love of racing. You can't help wondering what might have happened to his career had he gone to Ferrari on a long-term deal in 2014. But ifs, buts and maybes are everywhere in F1. Nico, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. And thanks too to Renault. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week with another Don't Miss interview from the world of F1. While you're waiting for that episode to drop, why not subscribe to Beyond the Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And thanks for your messages about last week's show with Gordon Murray. You found him as fascinating as I did about an era of F1 when there was great technical freedom. Love this episode, says Aravin there. I'd heard the name Gordon Murray, but never knew how much of a genius he was and the pivotal roles he played behind the successes at Brabham and McLaren. What an incredible human being. I couldn't agree more, Aravind, and Gordon continues to inspire and play a pivotal role in the future of automotive design through his T50 supercar. Please keep your feedback coming. We really love it. And remember to use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs> <laughs>